Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Well, as Rob said, we've been walking through Philippians. We're in chapter 3 this morning. And if you've been here, you know that Paul, he's writing uh, in in the midst of an imprisonment, likely in Rome, and he's writing to churches uh, who are being attacked on all sides. And specifically here, we find Paul writing the Philippian church, who is being now pressured. They're being persecuted because of their faith. They are experiencing increased uh, false teachers trying to invade their midst. And if you read between the lines in, in, this, in this letter, it feels like the church is beginning to fracture. They're, they're beginning to be cracks in the facade. And yeah, I, think the, the, I think they know they need help and they need to pull a ripcord. And the best, most effective ripcord that they have to pull is sending somebody to Paul, the guy who started their church. And so that's what they did, and Paul has been writing to them, lifting up some of the deepest and most profound truths that we have in the Christian faith. And and as Rob said, Paul has been talking about his sanctification, all his accomplishments, and how, how as great as they are, count as nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And in this transition into our passage, to me, I think you have the feeling that Paul has wondered, have I somehow set the bar too high or could I be perceived as communicating something more than I mean to, than I mean to communicate? So the, the way I think about this, if you're around somebody who is just off the charts better than you in a certain area, off the charts better golfer, off the charts better cook, it, the, the feeling can be, well, why should I even try? <laughs> I mean, you are so much better than I'll ever be. Why should I try? I had the opportunity to take my boys to a magic game this week. I haven't been to a magic game since I was their age. And, you know, I'm convinced NBA athletes all around are the best athletes in the world of any sport. And, you know, I look at these guys, and if in the physical realm I'm going to compare myself to them, well, it's going to, as optimistic as as a personality as I have, I'm going to give up. My genetics will never let me be anywhere close to these guys. And so I think spiritually, Paul is wanting to make sure he doesn't do something similar in this passage. And this is why, right off the bat, he says, not that I've already attained this or I'm perfect. 
you hear it there. I'm not in some place that you can't get. I'm not perfect. And he goes on to say in verse 17, let those of us who are mature think this way. So this is the key to what Paul is wanting to do. He's wanting to say, there is a way mature Christians think. And I want you to think that way. There's an immature way and there's a mature way. And uh, I have four little kids, so I'm around lots of mature and immature thinking regularly. I I, I got to bring my two youngest to a fire station this week and see the the fire trucks and everything. And it brought back a memory. It just came into my mind uh, a few years before we were in Oxford and I was trying to teach my children um, how, what you do in case of a fire. So we practiced getting low and we all crawled, you know, from their rooms to the front door, to the back door. And we, you know, if you can't make it to the door, you go to your window, you try to get out the window. If you can't, you just stay there and wait. And I thought everything had gone really well. And I said, any questions? One hand popped up and she asked, but what if I can't get out? And I said, it's okay, sweetie, you'll get out. I'll I'll save you if you can't get out. Don't worry about that. Then another hand went up. But if you could only save one of us. Who would it be? And, and that's the kind of immature thinking that, that you have when you're raising children. And it quickly descended into total nonsense as they made their cases as to why they should be the person saved. And then they were really upset when the dog wasn't on the list of people to save. They're prioritizing, you know, what stuffed animals they need to get out of, out of their house uh, as, as they escape. And what we saw happening here is immature thinking that was leading to anything but joy. Immature thinking that was leading to anxiety and fear and strife and dissension. And in the same way, Paul is saying in the Christian life, there's immature thinking that will lead to strife and anxiety and dissension, and there's mature thinking that will lead to joy. And Paul says in this passage, mature thinking is having a mind that knows about and is set on the prize. The prize, knowing the prize, striving for the prize. If we are mature Christians, we are going to constantly think about and strive for the prize of the Christian life. So if that's mature thinking, what I wanna do this morning is answer three simple questions about the prize. I wanna wanna answer what is it? What is the prize? Why should we pursue the prize, the motivation behind it? And then what tools we have along the way to aid us in our pursuit of that prize? That's what we want to do. So first, what exactly is this prize? And there's a little bit of debate within the Christian world about what this prize is. Some people would say, well, the prize is knowing Christ. Now, that's what Paul was just talking about. He was talking about, he said, that I may know Christ. Uh, Everything I've done it appears as dung compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. So scholars would say that's, that's the prize. And then you have other people, other scholars who say, well, it's close, but the prize really is Christ-likeness. That's why Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but that's where we're getting. Christ-likeness, sinlessness, perfection. And, and in, you know, in defense of that view, Paul does finish his passage by talking about Jesus coming back and us getting our glorified bodies and existing in perfection. And it is in line with what Paul says in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Paul says, and we we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, 
for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and here it is, predestined for what? To be conformed into the image of his son. So the whole point, according to this camp, is that, the, that we would be made into the image of the son, Christ-like, sinless, perfect. So which is it? What is the prize? Is it knowing Christ or is it Christ-likeness? And the answer is yes. It's both. Because the way that we know Christ is by becoming like him. That, that has to be clear. The way that we know Christ more fully is by being conformed into his image. And you know, there's lots of places in scripture that we could go to understand this better. But I think if we just ask ourselves, why is this necessary? You know, why do we need to be conformed into the image of Christ to know him more fully? That's the question that unlocks the answer to what's going on here. And if you go back and you look at the theme of the the temple or the tabernacle before it, you can see that the reason we don't experience fellowship with the God who created us is because we're not holy. He's holy and we're not holy. He's perfect, we're sinful. He's loving, we're rebellious. And so you see it actually manifested when you had the tabernacle or the temple God was in the middle, and it wasn't like, you know, God was nowhere else. That was his little box that he lived in. The the middle of the temple was God's meeting place with man. That was the place where we came and could commute with each other, communicate with each other. And so to go to that center place, you had to be more clean and more holy. And the less clean and less holy you were, the farther you were pushed out away from the center of the camp, or even, to some extent, outside of the camp if you're talking about the tabernacle. And there's some people read this and there's this idea that, you know, God is just allergic to sin. <laughs> you know, sin does what God, what water does to the wicked witch of the West. That's not a biblical understanding of holiness and unholiness. When holiness and unholiness come together, there is an explosion. And when the dust settles, holiness is doing just fine. So God had to deal with our unholiness so that we could experience the joy of knowing him. And that's why he sent Jesus. So Jesus fundamentally had to do two things. First, he had to pay the penalty of our sin. And he did that by living a perfect life and offering that perfect life as a sacrifice so that the penalty we earned goes to him and everything he earned in his perfect life comes to us. Then we're declared legally holy as if we lived a perfect life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Then he needs to actually make us that way. To actually make us holy and without spot or blemish so that one day we can stand in front of the God of the universe and experience perfect fellowship with him for eternity. That's mature thinking. That's the prize that we would be by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit conformed more and more into the image of Christ so that we can know more and more fully Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the prize. So that's mature thinking then. There's obviously immature thinking that we need to watch out for. And immature thinking, I think, would play itself out one of two ways in this passage. First, uh, first option for immature thinking, I think is kind of the most obvious one. If mature thinking is striving for the prize, immature thinking is not striving for the prize. Immature thinking is saying things like, well, 
I'm hearing Paul say the prize doesn't really fully come to me until after this life. So why would I even try? You know, why would I go through the hard work of earning something or, or, or working towards something that I don't get until after this life is over? You know, I'd rather live the way I want to live now and then enjoy the prize later. Don't I kind of get the best, best of two worlds, best of both worlds in that scenario? But the hard truth is that where there is no motivation to pursue the prize, there often is no prize waiting. And this is what Paul is saying in verses 19, 18 and 19. He's talking about some people who thought they had the prize coming, but when things got hard, their motivations began to be revealed that they cared not of the prize, but of things of this world. Verses 18 and 19. For many of, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So there it is, with minds set on earthly things. That's the immature thinking. Mature thinking is a mind on the prize. Immature thinking is mind on earthly things. And if we have an enemy who does not want us to think maturely, my goodness, what more of a win could he ask for than to have a people who think there's a prize waiting on them so they feel no need to work towards that prize or flesh out that prize or put their minds on that prize. And this is our culture. This is the culture we live in. We are surrounded by people in the United States of America who largely do believe there's a prize waiting. But, and, and deep down at a, at a subconscious level, they know we have to deal with our unholiness, although most people would not describe it that way. So the only thing you can do to be acknowledge that we're sinful and that there's a prize waiting is to some way lower the bar or just ignore it. So you hear people saying things like, I, I think I'm okay if I just fundamentally do more good than bad in my life. I'll be okay. There'll be a prize waiting for me, which how you discern good and bad, I have no idea, like a 50%, 51. But they do that to tell themselves that their unholiness is being overcome in some way. Or you'll hear people say, well, if I just, if I keep away from the really bad sins, you know, I believe there's no prize waiting for Hitler or Saddam Hussein or bin Laden. But if I keep away from the really bad sins of murder and rape and kidnapping and things like that, I'll be okay. That's lowering the bar, but then there's, there's a group of people who says, you know what, I just don't want to think about it until I'm closer to death. <laughs> I know I'm probably going to have to wrestle with it, but I sense that I'm far enough away from that day. I just want to ignore it, do what I want to do, and trust that there'll be a prize for me in the end somehow. That's the first type of immature thinking, not pursuing the prize. The second type of immature thinking is thinking we can fully attain that prize in this life. Again, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So there are those in our 
you know, in our culture, in the, the Methodist stream or the holiness stream that would say Christian perfection is something you can attain. You can become perfect like Christ. I, I think Paul here has in mind the Judaizers who, who would say something similar, not exactly the same. They would say if you hold to our traditions, if you follow the law, if you're circumcised, then you receive the prize of law abider, law follower. There is an over-realization of the prize that is to be had in this life. And the main fault with this view is that it deals with our actions, not our hearts. And I really don't think at Orlando Grace, from I've been here a few months, I've got, I feel like I've gotten to know you well enough to, to think that there's probably no one in this room that's worried that, like, of achieving a sinless life before we die, achieving Christian perfection. But that doesn't mean that we're not susceptible to the same kind of immature thinking. So how might it play out in our context? I think in our context, we can think things like, if I know the right things, if I, if I practice all the kind of reformedish church practices that are out there, then we will have a type of prize in this life. A type of prize in, having, in doing church, and doing life a certain way, and we'll know that we're finding our prize ultimately in this and not in what's waiting for us and what God wants us to do because of two things. We'll know that we're focusing on the externals. So anytime we're focusing on the externals, that's not the prize God has for us, it's the heart. And we'll be able to see that because we'll begin to think much too highly of ourselves and our church and much too lowly about other Christians who do certain things differently. I think that's how this second type of immature thinking would play out in our context. So I want to give us a diagnostic. Like, how might we know if we are trending towards this second type of immature thinking? Thinking that there is a prize that we can fully attain in this life. And it has to do with our actions, not our hearts. And it's this. Are we more aware of our sin now than when we first began this journey. You know, we, we look at Paul and we, we know pretty much the, the order of the letters that he wrote. And you see this journey of Paul becoming more and more profoundly aware of his sin. And it doesn't mean that Paul is becoming more sinful. It, he's becoming more aware of the depths of the sin in his heart. So in the beginning, he's very remorseful of his actions. He's sorry that he had a part, a part in killing Christians. He was deeply sorrowful of that. But then you get a little later to Romans chapter 7, chronologically later, where Paul is beginning to wrestle with his heart more. I, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. And then you go to 1 Timothy, where Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. And you see this growing understanding of the depth of the sin in Paul's heart. And I think that marks the road of mature thinking. Do we see the depths of our sin more profoundly the more mature we become or are our actions changing enough to make us think that our hearts are fundamentally okay that's the second type of immature thinking so that's the prize becoming more like Jesus that we may know Jesus more but I haven't really talked about why we should care like why we, we should want this. And that's the second point. Motivation to pursue it. Our core motivation is in verse 12. Paul says, I press on to make it my own, it being the prize, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
So we press on because Christ has already purchased us. So every other worldview says we press on that we might be made God's own. But the Christian worldview says that we're already his, so we press on. There's a fundamental difference in there. And people, generally speaking, are hardwired to respond to grace and love better than guilt and fear. And it's no coincidence that that's our hardwiring and that's the way that God operates in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's pursuing us the way he wired us to function. And so one of the best illustrations of what this looks like, this motivation knowing that God has already pursued us, that Jesus has already made us his own and how that motivates us to pursue the prize comes from a pastor named Tim Keller, he had a, uh, a young girl, a high school girl in his church, and she had qualified for AP English. And she was excited to qualify, but then this deep fear began to resonate inside her. And the fear of the rigor of that class, it caused her to not be able to eat. It caused her to not be able to sleep. And then finally, she went to her dad and said, I, I just can't do it. I've got to pull out of this class. And he could see the stress on her and he said, fine, I'll go with you. We're gonna go talk to the teacher. And they went to the teacher and the teacher said, all right, you can pull out of my class. But let me try one thing. What if I guaranteed you an A, no matter what? She was was no fool. She said, well, I'll, I'll take your class now if I'm guaranteed an A. And do you know what happened? When the guarantee of an A was given and the possibility of failure was removed, she was freed up to enjoy that class. And when she was freed up to enjoy that class, she actually worked harder and earned the best grade in the whole class. This is what Paul is getting to. His motivation is that Christ Jesus has made us his own because if we believe that Jesus has made us his own, that he first loved us, that he first pursued us, that he is going to maintain us, he's going to keep us, until the prize is fully ours, then that's gonna motivate us to pursue the prize more fully. The more we realize that Jesus has made us his own, we haven't done anything to deserve it, the more we're gonna naturally think about the prize and dwell on the prize. The way maybe an eight-year-old boy dreams about playing in the NBA, really believing he can, or the way a little girl dreams about marrying a prince with sureness in her heart and dreams of that wedding day. We, understanding that Jesus has made us his own, should long to imagine, to meditate on, to dwell on the reality of that prize actually happening in our life. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in verses 20 and 21. He's longing, he's dreaming about this. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And it's easy in church for something this profound. Jesus is coming back. He's making us whole. He's changing the earth. We're gonna live with him for eternity without any sin or pain or strife whatsoever. It's easy for that to become so familiar that the gravity is lost, that the magnitude of what is being said is completely lost. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody in this room. And I I first realized this about seven years ago. I was on a plane over Spain, and that's important because we're in a European mindset here, with one of my best friends. And my best friend is talking to the guy next to him and kind of asking him, you know, what motivates, what do you think about life and 
kind of understand his worldview better. And finally, this, this guy, he was British. He said, well, I'll be honest, I've got some pretty weird views. <laughs> My friend said, I'd love to hear your weird views. He said, all right, I believe the moon is a spaceship. And that spaceship is inhabited by fourth dimensional creatures who watch us. And I've since Googled it, and that's a real thing. Like there's a whole bunch of people who think the moon's a spaceship. And so my friend listened, and, uh, and then he said, well, I wanna l- let you know, I appreciate you sharing that with me. I've got some unique views myself. I believe that one day Jesus is gonna come back. The world is gonna be consumed by fire. It's gonna be made new. All believers in Jesus at one moment will be risen from the dead. They will be given new glorious heavenly bodies that will be able to probably fly around, explore the universe, and we're gonna dwell here with him forever. And then the moon spaceship guy turned to him and said, wow, now that is a weird view. <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't think my view is weird because I believe it's really gonna come to pass, but, but we need to acknowledge it's that big a deal that it should either captivate us or cause us to look at it and say, that's just too weird. But just existing and saying the right words is not where we wanna live. We want, don't want this to become so familiar that, that the grandeur is lost on us. Because the magnitude of what Jesus is going to do when we are given that prize, it changes all of our perspectives today. It makes us more willing to die to ourselves. It makes us more willing to use our, our time for prayer and our money for the mission. It makes us more willing to serve other people and to share this message with them in hopes that they might experience the same prize that we're getting. But we have to be careful that another thing doesn't happen. We have to be careful not to miss another implication. And that implication would be that we won't experience the prize in this life. We can't think of it as over-realized in this life, but we can't think of it as only existing in the next life. This is something that Paul is pursuing. You know, we can't think of the Christian prize as simply some sort of some pie in the sky which you, you may know, that, that phrase was coined in the beginning of the 1900s to make fun of Christians. It, there was a parody song written about the song, The Sweet By and By. Uh, it went like this. You will eat by and by in that glorious land above the sky. Work and pray, live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die. It's making fun of Christians. They, they'll endure anything thinking there's this prize in the sky waiting for them. But the Christian hope is a prize that we can take hold of to some degree now, that we can taste, that we can experience, again, not fully, but tangibly in this life. And what Paul is saying is to the degree that we pursue that prize in this life, to that degree, we will experience being conformed into Christ-likeness. And to that degree, we will know Christ. And to that degree, we will experience the joy of the Christian life. That's what Paul's talking to us here. To the degree we strive for the prize of the Christian life, to that degree, we will be made like Christ and we will have the joy that Christ intends for us to have. So we strive as Christians. And Paul, you know, I'm thinking, his main motivation is that Christ has laid hold of him. 
He has a deep confidence that Christ has laid hold of him, that he has made him his own. And for Paul, we know that happened on the road to to Damascus. And some of you in this room have a Damascus-like knowledge that, that Jesus grabbed you, he got you, he made you his own. My story's somewhat like that. Some of you, though, you're more like my wife. It's like, you know, somewhere in this 10-year period, I don't have a day, but I know in this 10-year period, I began to understand that I am sinful and Jesus is my only hope. In my mind, it does not matter when we were made Jesus's. It matters that we were made Jesus's. And I can't come across a passage like this and not ask, have you been made his? Do you desire the prize? Are you pursuing the prize? Might he be luring you, wooing you, wanting you to respond to the prize that he has for you? And for everyone in this room who wants the prize and wants to pursue the prize, Paul gives us some tools that we can lean on in our pursuit of that prize. Last point. The tools we have. Paul gives us three tools. First, in verse 17, he says that we are to imitate others. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And it's really interesting to me how Paul can very humbly say, just just watch me. (laughs) Just look at me, imitate me. You're gonna learn a lot just from being around me. I don't know that I could... I could say that, maybe it's just because I've got a long way to go before I'm anywhere like Paul, but I can say how much I've benefited from watching others, from watching, being around others, not just in the good times, but especially when they're experiencing difficulties in their life. Being around people when they're experiencing difficulties shows where their values really are. Angela and I have some very close friends that have invested in us and and affected us in some significant ways. Uh, as a man and a woman a little older than us, uh, they are both some of the most gifted people I know at what they do. They have given their lives to the ministry of the gospel. And this summer, he lost his job as a pastor. And, and in my mind, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, I'm tempted to think, God, how could this happen? This guy is so gifted. He has given his life to serve you and get your gospel out, to teach your Bible, and this happens. Now, I'm, I'm prone to questioning God's goodness, but in God's goodness, I get to be very close to this couple as they're going through this situation, and I get to see a couple who doesn't respond like me. I get to see a couple that trusts in God's faithfulness and his goodness, even in the midst of profound pain and loss and certainly confusion. And I can say, although as much as I hate that it's happening to them, if all of this is happening, that a handful of people, Angela and myself included, can watch this couple go through this in such a godly way that we could imitate them, then it might be worth it. Because I can tell you, I'm being made, I'm being more motivated from what I'm seeing imitating this couple to pursue the prize. You're getting a better pastor because I'm able to watch them pursue the prize. So do we have people in our lives that we can watch and imitate? Secondly, we need to forget what is behind. Verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. So I think primarily what Paul's saying in this context to the the Philippian church is leave behind the old covenant. 
Leave these things behind. There's no value for you now in, in the rituals and being circumcised and following that which Christ has fulfilled. But that doesn't mean that it has no application for us today because Paul tells all of us, when we believe, we have an old self and a new self. And forgetting what lies behind for some people around the world is letting go of the old covenant. But for most in our context, it's going to be letting go of an old life with old habits and old motivations that we need to acknowledge, repent of, and then, thirdly, if we're going to strive for the prize, we focus on what's ahead. Verses 13 and 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One pastor I read said that we need to make sure we're homesick. We need to make sure that we know this is not where where we're supposed to live. We know we're not experiencing the prize that fully awaits us. And to the extent that we're homesick to that extent, we're going to pursue the prize in this life. And if you like science fiction movies or TV shows, you're going to really understand this well. Because every science fiction movie or TV show that I can think of, there's a common theme. You have a main character who was either taken somewhere or shown something that they didn't know, and that knowledge made it impossible for them to continue the lives the way that they were. Everything changed because of what they learned. And I have just described the themes of The Matrix, The Hunger Games, Stranger Things, Harry Potter, every sci-fi that's out there, that's the common theme. And that's, in some ways, the Christian life. Heaven has broken into earth. We have seen things and learned things, and we know about the prize that not only awaits us, but that we can taste and work towards today. And with that knowledge, we can no longer live the same way. We will be conformed by what lies ahead of us. When Angel and I uh, were first married, we lived in Pisa, Italy, which sounds great. It was a really hard time of our lives. But we, uh, we went over there not knowing a lot of the culture and language. We had this little apartment where you could stand in the middle and almost see every square inch of it. We, the, the, it was a very Italian apartment. It did not feel American at all. Um, we would constantly hear Italian outside. The TV was Italian. We, were, we lived across from the hospital. So every day, every night, we heard not American alarms, but European alarms. So we're constantly reminded, this is not home. And we were homesick. And so the way we dealt with that in the short term, we wanted to make our apartment home. We wanted to paint the walls and install a tub and get American TV. And I bought a grill so I could make some real hamburgers. And while that's probably not the best mission strategy, I don't think Laura should go do that in Chad. But it illustrates a point. I longed for a home that I wasn't experiencing. So I was trying to conform my experience to match what I longed for. And what Paul is saying is the more we understand who we are made to be, the prize that we will receive if we believe in Jesus of being made like him and knowing him perfectly. To that degree, we will pursue that now.